So I know it may seem like we plan all of this, but I assure you this is just how it works in ways that we don't plan. Um, because we were supposed to have this baptism several weeks ago, but because of illness we had to have it delayed. And it just happened that we rescheduled baptism today on the day when the Advent lighting passage dealt with the baptism bowl that we would have had here today anyway. And the message and the passage that I have in our sermon series today is also going to look at baptism. You may think that we have like this grand plan of how this comes together, but I think God just puts it together that way. We didn't really figure all those things aligning like this, but thank goodness God did. So that's where we are today. So I'm going on to the, the message in our series that we're talking about, where we talk about working towards Advent, and I've been using these uh, themes and images of airline travel, what it means to be on an airplane and the experience of that is sort of one of those ways for us to visualize the themes that go along with Advent and what it means for us to prepare for the coming of Jesus. Today we're going to keep doing that as we work through this series of passages, and, and it's, I'm going to be looking at a passage that comes out of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 3, but first, to set some of the background behind that, some of the groundwork, a few stories that come from the Old Testament that help us along with that as we've been thinking about what it means for us to prepare for Jesus, okay? So first, a few verses from Exodus 14. And this is the story of when God's people, the nation of Israel, were leaving Egypt and getting ready to cross over to the promised land through the Sinai wilderness. But the first thing they get to is the Red Sea is in their way. Exodus 14, I'm going to read just a few verses beginning at verse 19. It says this, Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then... Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Now I'm going to bump ahead to another passage. This one comes from Joshua chapter 3. This is Forty years later, the nation of Israel has been in the Sinai wilderness, and now they are ready to cross over into the promised land. So they're right at the edge. The Jordan River is in their way. Joshua chapter 3, I'm beginning at verse 14. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests came carrying the Ark of the Covenant that went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet, as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. 
The priest who had carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed crossing on dry ground. Those are two stories from the Old Testament about, well, crossing through water. Now, one story from the New Testament. This one taken from Matthew chapter 3, and it is about the baptism of Jesus. Matthew 3, I'm beginning at verse 13. It says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Baptism. So uh, this is the event that we get to today in the life of Jesus, that we see a little something of that happening here in our service today as well. This ritual, uh, this practice that the church does with water and what that means. And and it's, it's a practice that just seems to show up in the Gospels. Right? It, the word baptism, it comes from the Greek word baptizo, which is literally transliterated into English as baptism. And, and it has no Hebrew Old Testament equivalent. There's, there's no Hebrew word for baptism because it never happens in the Old Testament. It's not a practice they did back then. It just seems to show up in the New Testament Gospels with this guy named John who's doing it at the Jordan River. And Jesus goes to him and he receives this sign of baptism. And then from there, Jesus instructs his disciples, the apostles, to continue to do this baptism ritual in the church going forward. So that's why we still do it today. But it just sort of shows up right there in the Gospels when Jesus goes and finds his cousin John to be baptized. There there may be a lot of speculation about how that tradition arose and and what made John go and and do this thing where he would put people into water and dunk them and bring them back up again and how that came to be, even though it has no mention in the Old Testament anywhere. But I think today, in, in those few passages that I picked on from the Old Testament, we see the foundations of baptism. That we see when Israel crossed the Red Sea, that was, in effect, something of a baptism. That when Israel, 40 years later, crossed the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land, there was something, in effect, there of a baptism. That they would go down into the water, and come back up again. I I know we don't see that the way we do that here because we wouldn't take babies and put them down 
in water. But maybe you've seen that in other places, right? A, a, a baptism of someone who's not a baby and they've, they've got like a big tank or something like that or a big tub. Or you sometimes churches will go and they will do that by a lake or by a river. And you've seen a baptism like that where someone is actually dunked or immersed all the way under, going down into the water and coming back up again. That's what baptism visualizes for us. And we see it even in some of those Old Testament stories. I picked on two, but you know what? I could pick some others too because there are other examples. Second Kings 2 is the story when the prophet Elijah transfers his prophetic authority to Elisha. If you were to read Second Kings 2, you would find something of a baptism that goes with that. Or consider the first two chapters of Jonah. You know the story of Jonah, at least it's, as it's told from Sunday school on. He's thrown over the side of a ship. He sinks down into the water, swallowed by a fish, and three days later, the sea spits him out again. Goes down, and he comes back up. We see these symbols of baptism scattered throughout the Old Testament, and they come forward to us today. And so what we see then taking place in the Gospels is Jesus comes and he finds John the Baptist and he says, I need this too. I need to be baptized by you. John is resisting, isn't he? No, 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 no. You see, I'm the one who needs it from you. But Jesus is insistent. This has to happen, he says, to fulfill all righteousness. Fulfill all righteousness. You know, we've been seeing in this series that we've been doing through Advent, we've been looking at all these different ways that, that Jesus takes on the experiences of his people, right? We've been seeing these passages where Jesus, in effect, lives through what his people have lived through. We saw that with the flight to Egypt that took place. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that. Last week, we saw that with Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. Today, we see that with Jesus' baptism. That, in effect, what Jesus is doing here is he's going down into the water and coming back up in a way that says, I am uniting myself and my experience with the life and the experience of my people. That Jesus unites himself to us. But baptism also points forward then too. It's not just pointing back to those experiences, but it's pointing forward, forward to what Jesus is ultimately bringing, right? That there is something pointing forward to his crucifixion and his death, that in baptism he goes down into the grave and comes back up again to new life. And suddenly in that moment where we see the death and resurrection of Jesus, we understand, we understand those experiences of God's people in the Old Testament of going down into the water and coming back up again are all meant to point to something, to the new life that God brings when Jesus goes down to the depths of the grave comes back up to new life. And so for Old Testament Israel, this, this experience of 
baptism as they had it. You see, for Israel, it was more than just getting from one side of the Red Sea to the other. It was more than that. It was going down and leaving the slavery in Egypt and rising up to new life of God's people in the wilderness. Baptism then becomes a symbol, a symbol of Christ's dying and rising. Forty years later, when the nation of Israel crossed over the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land, it was symbolic not only of, you know what, we need to get from one side of the river to the other. No, it was more than that, right? In that baptism event at the Jordan River with the nation of Israel, it was a dying of that wilderness generation and a rising up to new life of the generation coming in to the promised land. That in every one of these baptism-looking events of the Old Testament, you can see something captured within that of dying and rising. Dying and rising. That's where baptism brings us. This moment of dying and rising that Jesus brings. And how we, how we then approach that as God brings that to us. How we prepare for that. Consider a little bit of, of what that means and what that looks like. How we walk into that. We are here today on this third Sunday of Advent. This third Sunday of Advent in which we come, well, If you're looking at a calendar, we're less than two weeks from Christmas now. That can strike us in a couple of ways, right? I'd imagine that, I mean, mostly for kids and grandkids, it's, it can't get here soon enough. I can't believe I have to wait two more weeks. Can it just be tomorrow already? Can we get there? Now, there may be others who look at that and say, two weeks I'm so not ready yet. I need more time. I'm not prepared yet for Christmas, for everything that has to go with that. I still have gifts to buy and wrap, and I still have party plans to make, and I still have all these other things that need to happen, and I'm not prepared when it's that close. Two weeks out from Christmas, and as we've been considering in the Advent season what Christmas means, that we prepare ourselves for the arrival of Jesus. And maybe some of those same reactions take place. Maybe there's some who say, yes, Jesus, I am ready. I'm ready for you to come. I'm ready for you to return. I'm ready for you to take me home. And there may be others who say, I'm not. I'm not ready. I'm not prepared I'm not prepared for Jesus yet, and I've I've got more that I need to do or work on or whatever that may be to be ready for Jesus. I think this baptism story today points us towards something that we can take into this preparation for Jesus. This pattern of dying and rising that we see in baptism brings us to a place of knowing how it is we find 
preparation for Jesus as we wait for Christmas. You see, baptism, even though we see these examples in the Old Testament of people going down in water and coming back up, it becomes a pattern in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul talks about. In Romans 6, this is what the Apostle Paul has to say about baptism. He says this, We are those who have died to sin. How can we live then? How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. That we are preparing, preparing for Jesus to be united with him. Something that we see a glimpse of already in baptism and what that looks like. To be prepared for Jesus. So every week I've been, I've been looking at some of these themes that have to do with air travel and how that takes place, right? We talked about layovers. We talked about being rerouted. Today I want to talk about that final runway approach because here we are, two weeks from Christmas, and it's that final approach moment, right? We're coming in for a landing now. If you've been on an airplane before and you know what that final approach moment looks like, you know that there's always something that comes over the loudspeaker in the cabin, right? Yep, prepare for landing. There's a few things you need to do. Do you know what those things are? I mean, you've played this one through your head if you've been on planes a lot, right? All right, my seat has to be back in the upright position. Tray table has to get folded up. If you're on a computer, right, portable electronic devices, shut them down, put them away, that kind of thing. Make sure your seatbelt's fastened. There's sort of that checklist that they go through for everyone riding on the plane to know, yep, prepare for landing. Here's the things I've got to do. Then there's the things that I don't do, but they're still part of the preparation. Things that the pilot, the flight crew takes care of. Things like, you know, the the wing flaps have to extend so that the airspeed of the plane slows down a little bit. The landing gear better come down. We better have wheels beneath us when we come into land. And I imagine that there's probably a whole list of things that the flight crew has to check off that I know nothing about that take place in preparation for landing. We know a few things that we do to prepare to land, but there's a whole lot of other things that happen that we don't do, that are not a part of our preparation even though we're along for the ride. Now then, some of those things are, I would say, maybe more important than the others, right? So what were to happen if we're coming into land and you know what? I didn't straighten my seat and I didn't flip up my tray table. What were to happen? Do I just shout out, whoa, wait, wait, abort landing, call it off. We can't land yet. My tray table's still down. You can't do that. I'm pretty sure the plane could land all right if my tray table is still down. I don't think I could flip that the other way, though, right? I don't think it works the same way for that other checklist that the pilots work through. So, I mean, if if the pilots didn't extend the the wing flaps, so we're coming into the, the runway and we're still going like a zillion miles an hour, 
or they don't put the landing gear down. There's no wheels beneath us. Well, but, you know, my tray table's up, so we're good. Land it. I've done my part. I'm prepared. Put it on the ground. It doesn't work that way. You see, what what you and I would do as passengers to prepare for landing is about maybe that much when you put it next to what the pilots do to prepare for landing. That's sort of the big thing that takes place there. I wonder if we see then in baptism something that gives us a bit of that picture. That as we're getting close to Christmas and we're talking about being prepared for Jesus and maybe the reaction is, but but I don't feel prepared or what do I have to do to prepare and I'm not ready yet. And you know what, maybe, maybe it's not so much you and I who are preparing ourselves for Jesus, but what if it's actually Jesus who's preparing us for himself, right? I mean, we do some things to prepare for Jesus, but maybe the things that you and I do to prepare for Jesus are that much when you put it next to what Jesus does to prepare us for his arrival. So maybe all this focus on what you and I have to do to be ready for Jesus and prepare, well, I mean, that's important stuff, but maybe that's not the main thing, right? Maybe the main thing is not what we do, but what God does and continues to do in us and through us. On Thursday mornings, I meet with a, a group of guys and we do a Bible study. And the, the chapter that we looked at last time had this Latin term in it, Semper Reformata. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Okay, uh, and any of the guys who were there that Thursday morning, don't give this one away yet, all right, because we already talked about this. But if you've heard this phrase, if you have, or if you know Latin, does anyone know Latin? Uh, no, me neither. Semper Reformata, do you know what it means? Have you heard it before? always reforming, right? It's one of those phrases that uh, in, the, in the Reformation era of Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the like, that they would say about, about that the Reformation was not like this single moment, but that we are always reforming because God's Holy Spirit is always working to sanctify us. So the church is always reforming. Now, All right, so, and here's where we caught this with the guys who were there on Thursday morning. That's actually not an accurate translation because the verb is not active, it's passive. Semper reformata does not mean always reforming. It means always being reformed. That we are not the ones doing the reforming. God is the one doing the reforming. We are the ones being reformed. So in this Advent preparation, I wonder if we look at what we see here in the baptism of Jesus in the same way, right? That as we think of Advent and preparing ourselves for Jesus, that it's not just preparing myself for Jesus, but, but it's being, being prepared by God for Jesus. 
that God is the one who's doing the preparing. And we are the ones receiving that preparation. Because here's what we saw in the baptism that took place here today. Right? We saw a child who doesn't know who Jesus is yet. But that doesn't stop the promise of God from being made. You see, the grace of God does not begin with any promises that you make to God. The grace of God does not begin with the promises you make to God. The grace of God begins with the covenant promise that God makes to you. It begins with the promise God makes to you even before you know who he is. We're reminded of that. I I think the families here who are mourning losses of loved ones have been attending funerals over the past week or so. I'm reminded of that in Scripture that reminds us of God's grace that holds us secure. That for those who die within that grace, they have assurance that they are with Jesus. But it's not just in those last moments of life. It's not just at the end. We see here today also the way that that same covenant promise applies at the very beginning. Right? I mean, it's not the final approach landing moment. This is the we're taking off, wheels up, we're just getting started kind of moment. And even then, that same promise, that same covenant of grace comes in and wraps itself in. God assures us, he assures us that his covenant promise is made to us, not just in the end of life, not just in those final moments, but your whole life has been held by that. That God's grace has relentlessly pursued you your entire life. That God is preparing you. You are being prepared because God has promised in his covenant that this is exactly what he would do. Exactly the covenant that he made. So for you who are here today, Maybe your life is in one of those, I'm just taking off, it's wheels up, we're just getting started kind of ways. And that covenant is there for you to hold you through your entire life. There may be others here today for whom you're in a moment where you think, I feel like I'm flying on fumes. I've got nothing left. I don't feel prepared at all, and I don't feel like I can do anything to prepare myself in any way. For God, it was a struggle just for me to get here today to be in this place. And in that as well, it's not about what you do, what you've prepared. It's about what God is doing. Because consider that, right? If, if that's your story, right? If it's a struggle just to be here sitting in this place today, but you're here. You made it. Even if you don't feel prepared to be here, you're here. 
So don't miss this. Listen. Jesus prepared you to be here. You are prepared by God to hear his covenant promise, to be in this place, to be reminded. It's not about the promises you make to God, but it's about the promises that God makes to you. And he will continue to prepare you in that. Enough for today, for tomorrow, for the next day, and every day that you have breath. And that is why we celebrate. We celebrate baptism because we celebrate God continuing his covenant promise with us. And we respond with joy. It's why we can sing those words, heaven and nature sing joy to the world because God comes to us and prepares a place in your heart for him to reside with you forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and for the reminder there that our salvation doesn't depend on us, that we are not the ones who do the main work of getting ready for you, but you're the one who does that work, that you prepare us for your arrival. And Lord, may we then be people who find comfort in that promise, that we find assurance knowing that nothing can separate us from your love and that you give us just what we need for today. So Lord, continue to prepare us, prepare our hearts, prepare our spirits. And may we then be people who join with all of heaven and nature and respond in joy. May that be so. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.